You wanted to see me, Miss Swinton? Have you been hearing about the new government modernization efforts? AI, RPAs, data science. Things are changing at this agency, and people will need new skills. Oh. I'd like you to get some training. Huh. Look at this management concepts catalog. Wow, over 275 courses. That's right, in local classrooms or instructor-led online classes. We still have budget in this fiscal year, so sign up online. Advance your career with courses from Management Concepts. Get a catalog at managementconcepts.com or call 833-578-8466. This podcast may discuss topics graphic in nature and possibly triggering to survivors. We value the safety and well-being of all of our listeners, so please practice personal discretion. Now, enjoy the show. Hey, I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. We're the hosts of the Murder Diaries podcast. We bonded over tacos and true crime after we matched on Bumble BFF. You know, like any normal millennial using an app to meet new friends. Every Thursday, we upload a new episode. In each episode of the Murder Diaries, we tell true crime one story at a time. One week, it's my turn. And the next week, it's mine. You still think it's in my but I'm walking with the dead. On Tuesday, June 27th, 2000, 16-year-old Molly Bish went missing from her place of work in her small hometown of Warren, Massachusetts. This is her story. Born on August 2nd, 1983, Molly was part of a loving, tight-knit family. They were pretty prominent characters in the community. They were really respected community members. Her mother was a teacher, and her father was actually a probation officer. So he was involved in law enforcement, of course. Mm -hmm. He had actually grown up in Warren, and that's why he and his wife, Maggie, Molly's mother, had chosen to raise Molly and her two siblings, her sister Heather and her brother John there. Molly was actually the youngest of all three of the children. So they just kind of re-fell in love with Warren and decided as a family, this is where we want to raise our family. And it really was kind of an idyllic, small town, really safe. Molly was very athletic. She played soccer, basketball, softball, all for her local high school. And she was definitely college-bound and was consistently on the honor roll at her high school. She was recently enjoying time with a new boyfriend, Steve Lucas. And she had also recently been selected to take over her brother John's lifeguarding job at a local man-made pond called Cummins Pond. She was actually trained by her brother to do this too. So it was really kind of cute and special to the family and Molly and John. And Mm. again, this family was super tight knit. So it was just kind of a special moment that he was passing the torch on to his little and youngest sister to start being a lifeguard, which as you know, at the age of 16, that's a pretty serious job. You're going to have the health of people in your hands. It's a lot of responsibility for anyone, let alone a 16 year old. So I guess that also says a lot about her and her character that she was responsible at such a young age. Exactly. And that plays into this case a little bit as well. The case starts on Tuesday, June 27th, 2000. This was Molly's eighth day of work at the pond. So it was kind of going into her second week on the job. And she was 
a little bit distraught because she had woken up to some really bad news about a friend on one of her sports teams. This friend had been involved in a really bad accident, I believe a car accident, Mm -hmm. and was currently in the hospital in critical condition. I don't know a ton more about that particular story, just that they were definitely in the hospital, and this is something that was quite upsetting to Molly. But she carried on through, and this definitely is part of her character, too. She didn't take a day off work. She, you know, wanted to kind of maintain the normal routine. And, of course, as most people would with a brand new job, right? On your second week of work when you'd been training all winter. I guess that's how they termed it a lot in the documentary that I was watching that will be listed in the resources at the bottom. They talked about that she'd been training for a, for a long time. So she'd been training, they mentioned, all winter. I don't know how you train at a pond in Massachusetts during winter, but that's right. how it was yeah. phrased, that she would trained and then there was some kind of, you know, period of time that was elapsing during this training period, et cetera, and then, right, you're all set. And like you mentioned, there's a lot of responsibility. So she'd been ready for this for so long and only been working there for eight days. It's just so crazy. But so... Again, shows a lot about her character as well as who would, when they just start a job, all of a sudden need like a day off when there wasn't really much she could do for this friend at that exact moment. Maybe visit, but she can visit when she doesn't have a shift. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's kind of, I think, the thought process of Molly and the family and she muddled on and went ahead to work. Well, and it just shows that she's dependable to Despite what's going on in her personal life, she took her job seriously and she knew that she had an important role to keep everyone safe at the pond and had to be there. Exactly. And you bring up a really great point about her being dependable because one of the main reasons that she had decided that it would be best to, you know, keep going forward because it was the first day of swimming lessons. We're in the first week of summer. It's only the 27th of June. So summer had just started. So she knew she needed to be there. She knew that this was something that she was a little apprehensive about. Not in that she was doubting her capabilities, but it was a lot of pressure. Like you mentioned, like, okay, I'm a lifeguard that is a lifeguard at a pond, like my big brother. I got to live up to him, but also now I've got swim lessons. This could be dangerous. These are mm-hmm. these are learning swimmers. So very big deal there. Molly did not have her license yet. So her mom, Maggie, took her to work. She used to drop her off. Occasionally, Molly might drive, and then they'd switch seats. In Massachusetts at the time, you did have to be 16 and a half. And oh. I can vouch for this. I had friends... In Massachusetts at the time, and I visited in 2002, which was just about two, two and a half years later when I visited, and they were saying the same thing because some of them had like just started driving, and I was confused because they were a few years older than me, and I'm like, you just started driving? What? I'm about to, like, I have my permit. Like, what do you mean? (laughs) So it it was interesting. Along the way, Maggie and Molly stopped at a convenience store to pick up some waters and surveillance cameras do show this. So you can see them on that day. Molly's in her little blue one piece 
Mm-hmm. The security camera's black and white, but the bathing suit was blue. She's in her little lifeguard bathing suit that was blue and her shorts. And she had her, like, her little hair up. And you got her mom next to her. They're paying at the cashiers. You can fully see them. And it's just sad because you know Molly is about to enter something kind of bad in the very, very near future when you're watching this surveillance camera footage. It's almost eerie to know that Yes. They had no idea what was coming. Right. They had no idea what was coming. So they get those waters, head on to the police station. That also just shows you how small this town is. They're kind of cruising around like, okay, we're going to pick up this. And then right right there, we're going to go to the police station and pick up the two-way radio that Molly needed for her lifeguard job. That was something that was part of it. And that's actually something her brother trained her on how to use, which is kind of interesting. So here's how you use the radio. Here's a channel you should be on, that kind of thing, I'm sure, so that she could have that in case of emergency. And if she would be in need of um, other first responders, ambulance, obvious reasons, right? It's incredible that she even had that direct line of access to the police and first responders and what we know happens, happens. Honestly, you're kind of blowing my mind because while researching this case, I was paying so close attention to the details. I didn't even think about that. She had direct access to the police station. That's incredible. A push of a button. Right. She didn't even have to dial 911 and wait for it to connect. She literally Mm -hmm. had to hit the side of the walkie-talkie and she would have their attention. That gives me chills. That is very chill-worthy. I can't believe that didn't hit my mind. I'm kind of embarrassed. Honestly, insight to how investigators can overlook things as well and how easy that is to overlook. Yes, that is so true. And now I want to know what you are going to tell me about Molly and um, when she goes missing. Maggie and Molly arrived at the pond at about 10 a.m., right when she's supposed to report for her shift. So minutes after Molly arrived, which again was just around 10 a.m., that is when the swimmers were arriving as well. So everyone's kind of getting there at the same time. But when the swimmers got there, this is how quick everything had happened. They are ready for their lessons, and Molly was nowhere to be found. Duke's mail. Do you get it? Because only the ones that get it really get it. Your friends get it. Your mom gets it. Your grandma gets it. Your neighbors get it. Sometimes a dog gets it. Get out of there. What else? Uh, Your potato salads get it. BLTs get it. Tailgates get it. And restaurants get it, too. By now, even you probably get it. So get it today. Made without any sugar since 1917, Dukes is that little southern something that makes good things better. Get Dukes. It's got twang. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now, and for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672, or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. And as you know, there was probably certain laws, et cetera, in place of like these lessons can't 
happen until the lifeguard's there or if the lifeguard's not on duty, right. et cetera. There may have been some laws uh, or pr- policies, at least, you know, in place. This was a man-made lake, so that tells you the city probably owned it or the state or who, who knows. Right. Well, and these are people that will be learning how to swim. So mm-hmm. assuming that she's the one giving the lesson, so it's not like they're going to jump in the water without the teacher there. That was something I wondered, too, of if Molly was supposed to teach them or not. That was one of my first questions, too. However, a parent arrived to find Molly's chair empty. Her whistle kind of tied around like an arm of a chair, something like Mm -hmm. that. Flip-flops and no Molly, as we know. She went ahead and just assumed Molly's position, which to me, that was a little weird. But it's such a mom thing, though. Like, all right, well, we're on a tight schedule. My kid's here for swim lessons. Right. We better get things started. I don't know. Maybe just my mom. My thoughts were a little bit of, is this a Karen that's just like, I'm going to go ahead and be a lifeguard, though? Because, like, you're in the lifeguard chair, lady. But maybe she just meant, like, she was going to hang out in the area and oversee because nobody else was Mm -hmm. overseeing. Other parents wanted to maybe move along on their day to work or, you know, whatever they were doing so that they didn't have to stay during the lessons. Who knows? But she assumed the position. I should also note that the first aid kit was left suspiciously open. Nothing looked like extra rummaged through mm-hmm. or anything like that, but it was open. And that was a little funky. So when I heard that, I'm like, somebody faked an injury. Somebody faked an injury. Like, I went straight there completely. So that is a huge wonder of mine. A local mom assumes Molly's post, as I mentioned, and the lessons did begin. So there's our answer right there Mm -hmm. that Molly was not teaching and was strictly overseeing, which at the end of the day makes sense. How can you teach and really supervise safety of other people or other swimmers that, et cetera, you're not there. Most of the parents that were kind of arriving and there for the lessons, dropping kids off, I'm sure there was a myriad of people staying, not staying. They all were thinking, ah, this is a teenage girl. She just disappeared off with a friend or a boyfriend, which at the time, remember, she did have her boyfriend, Steve. But they were just thinking something like that. They really weren't thinking that at this pond at 10 a.m. in broad daylight when they had just arrived after she was supposed to be on duty, that something like this would have happened. Well, and it sounds like an idyllic town where— Things like this don't happen usually. Right. A hundred percent. The same parent, perhaps, or another parent. I kind of hope it was the same parent. (laughs) It probably was. Notified Molly's boss that she wasn't present. One thing I'm hoping you're going to cover is, was the radio slash walkie-talkie, whatever we want to call it, with her things at the chair with the first aid kit when the parents got there with their kids? Yes. The radio was found, I believe, on the chair with all of the other stuff that was in the area as well, like her Mm -hmm. whistle and the first aid kit and her shoes. So it looks like she literally left and meant to come back shortly after. Exactly. All right. Now tell me, the mom that called her boss, did she do anything after that? Did they report her missing? Um, What did the boss do? when he was notified. The boss actually ends up reporting her absence to the local 
police. Oh, good on him. I want to kind of just backtrack for one second and mention that we don't 100% know how related those swim lessons were to her job. I don't know. Did they have to call someone in to cover her or if she would have just supervised that lesson in general and and they didn't have to call in anybody. So we don't 100% know everything that's going on in the scene as the boss is arriving to then notify local police. I'm trying to set mm-hmm. the scene here so you kind of get an idea that, you know, not only are they not assuming, we don't really know, but we do have a lot of people at the crime scene right now. The police don't take it very seriously at first. They did do their job and show up and do the right mm-hmm. things, of course, but they too believed she may have just skipped off with a friend or friends and a boyfriend, which again, she did have. Right. This kind of stuff just doesn't happen there, and we've said it a couple times already in this episode. But also, what the heck? She's 16. Find her. I don't care the reason. Anybody who is 16, almost 17 years old, as in Molly's case, if they're gone, I don't care who they're with or who you think they're with. Go find them. They're not where they're supposed to be. That's a problem. It's not like she had a license and a vehicle for her to drive off in. She was dropped off. All her things were there. She doesn't have shoes on. Where are the people that are supposed to be noticing these red flags? Because to me, it just, it's not adding up to someone running away to go have fun. Thank you. That is also something I didn't think about until a little bit later on in my notes. Oh, yeah. She didn't have a car there. Mm -hmm. What the heck? Moving forward to 1 p.m., which was about three hours after she had been reported not on duty. Mm -hmm. And I specifically and intentionally claim it as that because that's basically all it's been reported as at at this moment. They finally tell her parents. Three hours. If my minor child's gone, please call me in 30 minutes. Like, do what you can try and do in the immediate moment, but then please notify me. Three hours seems like a long time, and I wonder if that's a lot longer than they would today, 20, almost 21 years later. I hope. I do, too. I hope uh, they wouldn't wait that long. Doesn't that seem like a long time? It's weird. It's weird because, like we said, this is a body of water. Too, you know what I mean? Like, right? What if she hit her head and fell in and drowned? Like, this is time wasted. So I would definitely be upset if this were my kid. Exactly. And Maggie was a little upset, of course, just with everything going on. Like, what? And she and Molly's sister Heather bombed down to that police station right away to try and make sense of what mm-hmm. is going on. Like, what's going on? My daughter is just not at work. Like. This is a missing persons thing, like probably things like that. Like they're probably trying to get everything in order and get a sense of what the heck's going on. Theories at the police station that were being thrown around were really just, is she upset and out of sorts today because of her friend in critical condition? Is she trying to go to the hospital? Does she get picked up to try and go to the hospital without shoes on um, and go visit her? Mm -hmm. You know, what's going on? So they actually did investigate that. It sounds like mostly by asking other close teammates and friends, like, 
Did you take Molly or go to the hospital at all today or know that Molly went to the hospital today? Whatever it was that they did find out and however it was that they were really asking or the combination of ways they were um, investigating a possible hospital visit, the answer was no. And it was very clear and firm enough for the family to just accept that. They knew she didn't do that. I think the main reason, though, as well, is that they knew Molly well enough. And they knew Molly would never leave her job, nonetheless, an important post like a lifeguard position, to go to the hospital to do that. And if you think about it, she and her mom were talking about it that morning. It was brand new news to them. Right. So... Why would she make her mom drop her off and then leave and not tell anyone? It doesn't make sense. Right. Molly and her mom, Maggie, had already had that conversation of what was going on with that. So I'm pretty sure Maggie would have been clear on Molly's stance and how she was feeling about visiting or not. Had Molly begged to go and then been forced, it could have been more in question. But Maggie, you know, look, this wasn't something that Molly intended to do. She didn't do it. Her friends say no. She says no. Again, we learn or are faced with the idea of listen to moms. They know their kids. They know yes what they're talking about. Don't write them off. No, it's so true. We have to listen to moms and women with women's intuition in all cases across true crime. We really do. That's such a great point. Molly's sister, another fine woman, as we're talking about, with some good women's intuition, went ahead and headed over to Molly's boyfriend's Steve's house. Okay, I was wondering. Yeah, and... I'd like to remind you and our listeners that this is a new boyfriend. They'd really only been dating for a couple months at this point, a few months. Mm-hmm. He had not heard anything from her either, but he really wasn't acting too worried. He wasn't. He he wasn't freaked out. But I think something really kind of telling is that he got in the car with Heather to go down to the pond and meet Ollie's mom there. So he had got active in that particular sense, right away. Mm-hmm. So he was ready to kind of just go be there for whatever the heck's going on with Molly, right? Her items were still there at that point. So everything that was there when these first swimmers and parents found her chair empty with all of the items surrounding it, all of that's still there. The police are still there and the family expresses and argues to them that this was just not Molly. She was conscientious. And she took the starting of these swim lessons. Again, they started that day was day one. She took it extremely serious. And she was a little nervous about it. And not to the point where it was like, oh, she would ditch out on it because she couldn't handle it. It was just like, okay, big day at work. That right. Those kind of nerves. Like you've got a big presentation, you know? It was out of character, and they could not express this enough. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now, and for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets and all your stress seems to melt away like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. 
You'll not only feel better, but sleep better too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. We should also remember, like you mentioned, she didn't have a car or shoes. And this is the biggest piece. This is what her brother says. He says, she didn't have a car or shoes, and she was wearing a bathing suit. Where is she going to go? Yeah, sure, you could borrow some clothes from a friend, you know, if they're going to pick you up. But they've already been talking about to these friends about maybe going to the hospital and things like that. So, you know, this it's just not adding up, and it's slowly becoming apparent that something bad did happen. And the police are finally starting to get on the side of the vicious parents. Again, it wasn't like it was this huge fight. The, you know, the documentary and articles don't say that there was this huge fight, but it did take some time. And rightfully so, because you really do have to look at all angles and you have to kind of go with Occam's razor of what's more likely. Unfortunately, in cases like this, it is more likely that, you know, something less sinister happens. Now, as true crime aficionados are never afraid to admit Um, and understand when something goes wrong, but the percentage chance of this actually happening to somebody is statistically very low. Well, scary and possible. So they have to go with the likely option first if they're going to find her. And it just wasn't that there was foul play. That wasn't the first option. But luckily now they're joining the side of the Bish family and going, yeah, minute by minute, it's more and more likely, right? And so Mm -hmm. that more likely option is becoming foul play, Something like that. And the site soon becomes chaotic because the local police call in the state police because they did not have a lot of experience with missing persons cases. So good job. Here's another case that we finally see them doing right by, oh, crap. We don't know how to do this. We're going to mess it up. We need your help. Mm -hmm. So they call in the reinforcements from state police. They come barreling in and it becomes quite chaotic This is all on that same day that she goes missing. We went from she's off with friends, maybe she's a bit of a runaway of some kind of sort, to, okay, state police, get over here. So things were happening quickly. Fire departments there, state local police, detectives, so many people all trampling the crime scene. They next go to a drowning So they're thinking, okay, something more sinister happened. She drowned. She went in to go get something, Mm -hmm. save an animal, save a person, what the heck ever, and then sunk. As soon as her brother catches wind that now this is the new... Theory? Theory. Thank you. And he rushes the water and swims around looking for her. And he searched and he searched and he would not get out of the water until he was pulled out. 17 years later... In the documentary, he still cries when he talks about that. Because he literally had to be pulled out of the water. It's unreal. So they did bring in a professional dive team, though. They're like, look, bro, get out of the water. We got the professional dive team. They're here. So they did do a professional dive team search of the pond. There was also boats and um, things like that that are also utilized in water searches. And they could not find her. And the search had continued for several hours. So now, now it's it's dark. She's been gone for 
getting closer to 12 hours by this point, you know, we're, we're probably getting close to 9 or 10 p.m. and it's getting dark and they decided, look, this just, it's got to cease for today, but let's get a search party going for tomorrow. So they do that and they get an even bigger search party set and ready to go for the next day, which was June 28th, a Wednesday of 2000. The search reconvened at 6 a.m. This time, there was even more resources deployed, like helicopters and, again, the, a bigger search party. The town set into action as well, so missing persons posters were posted in stores and just other areas around town. It should be noted that there was a lot of forested area in this town, and that means that there were a lot of trails and just a lot of other woodsy, very difficult to find people type areas that needed to be searched. They were about 70 miles outside Boston, so a small wooded town at best when you're talking about Warren. Part of those types of trails and things that are included in this small town was a wooded path that led directly from Molly's post on the beach, basically. Or I guess I should be more specific, saying the beach area, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So you can take this path from the cemetery down to the beach where her post was. And that path was very close to where she was sitting, right. if that makes a little bit better sense. With that being discovered... During this second day of searching, abduction was starting to become a much more real option, right? So we went from something sinister, maybe drowning, to, oh, this looks a little funky. Because somebody can park their car up at the cemetery, walk down, grab her, and have plenty of coverage as they drag her to a car that's parked somewhere safely at a cemetery, throw her in the car and be gone. And something to me that that sparks even more than just ease of access, you're talking about two separate places, right? right? And that is something even with robbery, for example, like if your backyard backs up to a different street than your address is on, for example, and somebody can easily get to another street from your backyard that's not your address, it is a lot easier to rob and be on a different street than the street that a robbery is being reported on, right? Anyway, so that is sort of playing into this where somebody can be leaving and driving and on camera at a cemetery, but have dragged somebody from this pond beach. So then law enforcement's going towards, okay, well, the first aid kit was open, and we're wondering now then, could somebody have faked an injury, or even if they just asked her for a Band-Aid, like, hey, lifeguard, do you have a Band-Aid, and kind of grabbed her and taken her off guard when she was maybe bending down and or was just distracted while getting something out of the first aid kit and opening that it and that kind of stuff. So they're definitely starting to piece together some things that are going, oh boy. The Bish family is, of course, quickly informed of the new route, the new theories regarding their daughters and their family members' case. And that jogs Maggie's mind. She quickly remembered somebody who may have done this to her. The day before Molly disappeared, so that would have been June 26th, 
at 10 a.m., just like they did on the day Molly, you know, went missing, Molly and her mom drive. Molly was actually driving on this day down to the pond for Molly to go to work. It wasn't hugely weird at first, but there was a white car parked right next to where they were parking to let Molly and Maggie switch sides of the car. Right. And Maggie had that women's intuition that we were talking about not long ago. And she just gets this gut feeling like, this guy's creepy. And we live in a small town and I don't really recognize him. Now, that might sound like a bit of an eye roll, especially to, you know, maybe people living in a city or a mid-sized town. At any rate, she was creeped out by this guy and she decided not to drive away, but instead mm-hmm. to go be with Molly while she was setting up. Good for her. It does seem like, exactly, I think so too. And it does seem like Molly would get there just before the pond was kind of opening or mm-hmm. as it was opening because, right, she was alone and her mom didn't want to leave her there alone. She didn't necessarily allude to Molly that there was some weird man or, hey, you know, that man that was next to us, he's weird. But she did sort of question to Molly, like, oh, gosh, you know, you didn't tell me how many strange men were around this pond right. while you're working. And she just kind of laughs it off and goes, oh, mom, like, it's just fishermen. Mm-hmm. And Maggie then went back to her car as her daughter was now set up and safe and maybe somebody had arrived. Maggie got to a point where she felt comfortable going back to the car. Quickly, though, she was made a little bit uncomfortable because that man was still there parked next to Maggie's and Molly's car smoking a cigarette. And it was just odd to her. So Mm -hmm. Maggie's like, I'm not. I'm just like, I'm not leaving. Is your daily grind getting you down? A thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now, and for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. I don't think she obviously still wanted to do anything extra to freak Molly out. So what she did this time was stay in the car and kind of just pretend to be busy fiddling around while she waited for him to leave. And I love that so much, but it is so sad because we know that the next day her daughter would be seen as missing while she's trying to avoid something like that happening to her daughter just the day before. The irony is disgusting actually like so sad and it shows mother's intuition so maybe she stopped him that day but it doesn't mean that he didn't come back around right and as many women do when the guy left she decided okay cool i can leave now too and started doubting herself like gosh i just i feel so silly for doing Mm -hmm. that i was worrying really for nothing he ended up leaving and I'm not scary. He didn't leave because of me. You know, she's women do this all the time. We need to all remember, don't do that. Always trust your intuition and all that good stuff. I do want to note that she did not see the man on the day that Molly did go missing or anything like that. I guess fortunately or unfortunately. Um, She did 
go ahead and work on a composite with law enforcement, though. So they did draw up the guy and she did get some some a good heavy look at this guy. You know, it was quite a little bit of time. Sees him. Ew, this guy's kind of weird. I'm going to go be with Molly. And then he's still here smoking a cigarette. So she got a long enough look. So this composite did become helpful in this case. They went ahead and set up a roadblock and they stopped people and asked them about a suspicious white vehicle, which the creepy guy was sitting in and the guy. They kind of were just asking people like, hey, have you seen it? And they talked to people at the cemetery too. And people that work at the cemetery actually reported seeing um, a suspicious guy in an unrecognized white car, but they didn't get anything too heavy from it, Mm -hmm. unfortunately. But luckily it was there as were all the answers from the people from the cemetery and the stops, et cetera, to kind of like back up the worries about this guy. The sketch did make its rounds with news outlets and a lot of tips started coming in. It was actually really overwhelming and it took up a lot of time and resources, which was kind of both good and bad if you think about it. They got a lot to work with, but at the same time, it's kind of like, this just isn't it. This is far-fetched. You know, people want to help, but sometimes if it's far-fetched, like, that doesn't help. It was to the point of like, hey, could this person have been younger? I know somebody that looks just like that, but they're like 20 years younger. Mm-hmm. It's like, stop. If they could shave, they they would look just like that. Lots of really helpful people, but like, oh, it was taking up a lot of time and resources, and that was actually a big issue. Well, we hear that a lot in cases where they have to comb through thousands of tips that come in. And yes. while it's all well-meaning individuals, mm-hmm. that still takes up time and takes the investigators' energy and focus away from what really, the tips that really matter. Right. And the DA office decides that they need to be getting some other tips as well by issuing a search for 125 white vehicles in the area. They didn't find any firm links, but something like that seems really useful to me. You know, you're going to have some more tangible items to work with that way. The pond area was combed again as well, but again, the crime scene was so heavily contaminated because all the first responders, when they were there the first day, didn't know what it was going to turn out to be. But that, to me, is like, if somebody's not where they should be, just always pretend it's, you know, a crime scene. And I'm sure there's other different policies and procedures at in different jurisdictions, and mm-hmm. it's also been 20 years. But at the time, that's what we're speaking to. So there was tons of walking around, right? You got heavy boots on the ground, quite literally. And Molly being a runaway actually still wasn't thrown out either at this time. That was always on the back burner. And some of the tips that they were getting in were actually reporting that they had seen Molly here or there and actually saying, I just saw her. She's alive and well. We saw that sort of thing in the Grime Sisters episode where people were saying, hey, we saw them at Graceland with uh, Elvis Presley. It's people trying to help, but it just spreads the investigators thin. Yeah, it just creates busy work. And the family was never on that side anyways. Mm -hmm. So to them, it was all just like, you know, it didn't give them any hope because they really just didn't believe that that was her. They knew not only was that not her, but that it was for sure foul play. There was just no other option to them. And I really respect that. All right, so besides this unfamiliar guy in the white car. Were there any other suspects that the police considered? 
Actually, there were. Molly's boss quickly became the prime suspect, and rightfully so, because his fingerprints were all over the first aid kit, which that's to be expected because he's releasing these items to the lifeguards, uh, however many there were. So it makes sense. She also be noted that first responders from that day of her disappearance also had fingerprints all over it. So it was kind of like, okay, we kind of expect why you would have your fingerprints on this, but it still was reason to look into him mm-hmm. because he also was the first to arrive when she was reported as not on duty that day. On the morning of her disappearance, he had also seen Molly's brother at a hardware store. At that time, he had actually already known about Molly not being at her correct post, mm-hmm. but he didn't say anything about it. You could look at this two different ways, and I don't want to go into things you might cover, but you're already assuming that the boss and Molly's brother have some sort of rapport because Molly's brother used to work with him. So did he want to cover for Molly if she were out with her boyfriend, or did he have something to hide? That Those are things that come to mind. Exactly. The family didn't necessarily know the boss super well outside of John, since it was just kind of John's thing, being the lifeguard and having this boss as his boss. Right. But John's reaction, knowing this guy, the best of all the family, was mostly he didn't think it was a big deal, and that's why he didn't mention it, as opposed to, hey, that's suspicious why he wouldn't have mentioned it when he saw John. Mm-hmm. So this shows that built-up trust from the family and 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 definitely John with this boss going. Mm-hmm. That's what that guy means. It also turned out to be time-wise, et cetera, the perfect solid alibi. Because if he was busy murdering or abducting somebody and had somebody with him, would he be at the hardware store? That's kind of what it ended up turning into, uh, in short. The boyfriend was also another suspect. He was looked into deeper, and he did have a strange cut on his face the day of the disappearance. They'd only been together, as I mentioned, for a few months, about three months. The relationship was new, and they had barely just been to the prom together a few months before that. They did seem happy, But they were very, very different people. But we see that all the time, you know? Opposites attract kind of thing. Maggie said that she wouldn't have necessarily picked him for Molly, but she had no reason not to like him. I think that just shows you this is a family getting to know what their daughter is like in a relationship and getting to know a brand new boyfriend who was a little bit more private and quiet. Steve was also not really seen as cooperative by law enforcement. I do not have a lot of information, but that was mentioned a couple times in the documentary that mm-hmm. he just wasn't that cooperative. I think that has to do with him being more reserved and a little no- more nervous. A lot of people get nervous around law enforcement. So we can explain a lot of these things away and I can go on like a billion tangents. Let's talk about the cut. Um, he had a cut on his lip and a missing eyebrow ring. And law enforcement noticed both of those things right away. A lot of times eyebrow rings are going to have a little bump or like a little hole there. It's a surface piercing. And then, of course, obviously a cut you're going to notice because it's bright red on your lip. 
So, of course, they question this. And Steve's answer is that he hit his bedroom door when he woke up. And that's why he cut his lip. Or that's how he cut his lip. When they bring up the cut to his friends, they mention that it was a cold sore. Or that Steve had explained it away as a cold sore. You got to remember, this is days after the disappearance. So, we've Mm -hmm. got the cut. Steve has seen friends since this disappearance, I'm sure. You know, he's being supported by friends when his girlfriend's missing and everything, etc. So people have been around him with this cut, and he explained it away as a cold sore. But So we're seeing some inconsistencies in his story. Yes, we are. And police are like, what the heck is going on with this? Um, and they also took note that he didn't participate in any of the searches. So none of this is looking really good for Steve. The Bish family still held the whole time, though, that he had never had anything to do with her disappearance. I think this may have a lot to do with their faith in Molly and her choice and judge of character, etc. Well, and they had someone else in mind for who could have possibly taken Molly. This is true. We had a lot of intuition going on with Maggie and mm-hmm. All of that kind of stuff. And we have to remember, this is a teenage boy. He got in the car with the older sister of his newer girlfriend. This is huge. Nonetheless, that they were going to a spot where Molly was last seen. So, you know, that that's a big deal for like a 17, 16-year-old boy to do already. So in his eyes, he probably had felt like he had done what he could because that was a big step in and of itself. And just jumping on the fact that you mentioned he's 16 or 17, he's still a minor. And maybe it wasn't by choice that he didn't get to participate in the searches. Maybe it was on advice by his parents or his legal team. Because truthfully, for anyone that does, you know, listen and consume true crime, we all know that we wouldn't be answering those questions and going to those things because we wouldn't want to put ourselves in a position to look guilty if we weren't. Exactly. And in you mentioning he's a minor, it brings up a great point of that it's not like he had all this huge stake in Molly's life. Other than maybe paying for an occasional dinner or something like that or a movie ticket, they weren't married. They didn't have shared funds. They didn't have this connected web of life yet that as married people or people in very serious relationships often might, right? Mm -hmm. So he just didn't have that much to do with her life at the end of the day being a 16-year-old new boyfriend. He was brought in for a polygraph and he passed. Now, you and I know polygraphs aren't perfect. I say this in every episode because it's very important to me that we get this information out there, that they are not perfect, but it did bode well for him that he passed and did not show a lot of nervousness, et cetera. That might've set off, you know, indicators of deception. So with all of this happening, they have to start looking at other routes. Warren does have what law enforcement refers to as a, quote, disproportionate, end quote, number of sex offenders in the area. So they, needing to kind of start from a whole new block, go after those individuals. They start questioning them and looking into their whereabouts. Many of these individuals are unfortunately not gainfully employed. That's unfortunate for them, of course, but it's also very unfortunate for the case as well because that made it really hard to- a lot of free time. Well, it made them really hard to track because you don't have a timestamp. You don't have any 
person that you can ask, were they here or not? All of that kind of stuff that would go into figuring out if someone was where they said they're supposed to be. So, right, if they're just supposed to be at home and they can say they were at home and they live on their own, well, there you go. Some of these individuals, when they took a polygraph test, did actually show deception. And obviously, they weren't all in on her disappearance. But it did allow law enforcement to break it down even further from these registered sex offenders of who they could look deeper into. They started doing, but unfortunately, nothing was really found there. So state police were giving it their all at this time. They were basically going home just to, like, brush their teeth and shower, like the three C's, like shit, shower, and shave, you know? Like, that's all they're doing. And they um, really were just giving it their all and, like, living at the Warren police station, which was actually the headquarters at that time. With all of this time passing, the Bish family has no choice but to just attempt to return to as much normalcy as possible. Molly's 17th birthday on August 2nd passes, and the holidays pass, and still no Molly. Her mom describes this season of her life, or of the case, however you want to term it, In the most harrowing freaking way ever, she says she was somewhere between hell and hope. And I was like, oof, that's freaking poignant. Mm -hmm. Like hearing her say that, could you even describe it any better? I, I couldn't. Unreal. And it makes so much sense. You're trying to have all this hope. Her body hasn't been found. Maybe she's alive. Maybe she's going to turn up. But also it's hell because your 16, now 17-year-old daughter is missing. And we have zero. We've got movement on the case, but we have zero hot leads. This is frustrating. She's somewhere between hell and hope. State police move out of Warren. They return back to the regular stations. But the investigation did of course, continue, despite not having many answers. They start to wonder if maybe it was revenge from a case that her father was involved in. Remember, he was a probation officer. Mm -hmm. So they were starting to wonder some of those types of things. Could there have been somebody that was really angry with him? There weren't really any leads with that either, though. And in fact, investigators found that he was really well-liked throughout his career in all different areas, both within the cases he managed and where he worked, etc., By spring 2003, so we're almost three years later here, tips are still coming in, which that's great, right? I mean, you're still getting action. It's moving. It's still on people's minds, which is good, but sad because you would hope that after three years it would be solved. Exactly. Here's two separate and unrelated eyewitness case tips come in. These tips place Molly in Miami within a block to like block and a half or so away from each other. So same area, two unrelated tips. That was enough for investigators to start booking a trip and deploying officers to Miami. Mm -hmm. This trip never happened though, because something happened. A retired cop that worked a case in the nearby area came to Warren in 2003 suggesting a connection. This connection was to the case of 
Holly Peranian. Many of us in the true crime community do know this case. She was a little girl that was staying with her grandparents in Sturbridge, which is very close to Warren, and she went missing while she was staying with them on August 5th, 1993. Holly was blonde-haired and blue-eyed just like Molly was. She went down the road to go see some puppies, and she never returned. Only her shoe was found on the side of the road. Molly and Holly were both 10 years old at the time that Holly went missing. So that to say that they were the same age. Mm -hmm. Molly heard about this story at church when it happened, back when she was 10 years old. The priest was sort of suggesting to parishioners that they send a prayer, note, letter, love to the family of Holly while their investigation was going on to try and find her. Molly took this seriously and wrote a note to the family. And I'm going to read you that note right now. I'm very sorry. I wish I could make it up to you. Holly is a very pretty girl. She's almost as tall as me. I wish I knew Holly. I hope they found her. Molly Bish, age 10. That just tells you she was obsessing over this case. She may have been a true crime aficionado herself, just a little baby, little baby true crime girl because she knew how tall Holly was. It hit home for her. It really was relatable. This was a girl who looked very similar to her. They have names that sound just like each other's, Holly, Molly, and they're just towns away from each other. It it had to have been eerie for her, even at that young of an age. Definitely. She felt tied to it. And others start to wonder that if that connection went all the way to the same perpetrator abducting Molly as mm-hmm. well. When you have a small area and you have two cases that are somewhat similar, not even within 10 years of each other, in an area where this doesn't happen, it is kind of smart to wonder if the same person did it because Holly's case was still unsolved. So Molly's family starts wondering about a connection and this retired cop that had worked on Holly's case comes into Warren and says, look, I think there's a connection too. And he's badass. He starts questioning hunters in the area because that's what led him to finding Holly's body back in 1993. Not too crazy different in 2003, while questioning the hunters, one of them says, hey, you know what? There was something I saw that was kind of weird. Didn't think a lot about it at the time, but now that I'm familiar with Molly's case, it's kind of sus. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So this hunter leads, I don't know if it's just a retired cop or a group of people, regardless, law enforcement is getting led to a piece of cloth. When they see this cloth, they're like, okay, this is like swimsuit, and it matches the color of what Molly's swimsuit was. So they're like, oh boy, we might have a piece of Molly's swimsuit. That's what they're thinking. So it was found in a heavily wooded area, which that makes sense, but it would be super shady, and the swimsuit might not be super faded, um, you know, or dried out, anything like that. So that that would make sense why it was a little bit recognizable, actually. 
and untouched. Yes. After he had seen it. Great point because this area was in the town of Palmer. Again, still very, still very close to Warren. And Palmer is actually where Holly's body was found as well. So there's just a lot of things going on here that are starting to lead them to wonder about a connection between Holly and Molly. And this area also, when you say untouched, it should be noted that, yes, this area was only known to locals and mainly only locals that hunted. Mm -hmm. So it's not an area heavily traversed, not a heavily traversed hiking path, nothing like that. Which also lends itself to questions of, was the offender a local? Yes, 100%. So in order to get to that and find this offender, hopefully, they sent out the bathing suit scrap, we call it that because we know that's what it is, to the state police lab as well as the FBI lab in freaking Quantico, Virginia. They were not letting down any guards. They were like, we're testing everything and here you go, Quantico. Like, let's do this. And while the bathing suit's being tested, huge manpower is like employed, deployed, whatever you want to say. Like, it's massive. And over 500 acres were searched in the area where the bathing suit was found. It was the largest search in Massachusetts history at the time. I'm not sure if it still is. So this was huge. Six days later, the DNA results from the tests come back from Quantico and the state lab. And of course, they match Molly Bish, as we know now. This obviously would have been huge to them at the time because they were like, oh my gosh, you know, after three years, we have something humongous. We have a piece of her bathing suit in Palmer, Massachusetts, which is not where Commons Pond is. That tells you that she was taken and moved somewhere else. It's huge. Mm -hmm. On June 3rd, 2003, so not long after that retired police officer made his way to Warren to discuss this with the community and local law enforcement. That, to me, is huge because he got there in May. This is June 3rd. So that's huge to me because that just tells you, like, his idea, his fresh mind on this, right, his fresh perspective that was brought in from having worked on Holly's case made a gigantic impact and fast. Mm -hmm. On June 3rd, three weeks after finding the bathing suit. So again, things moving fast. A possible human bone is found in the Palmer area. It was shortly recognized as human, for sure. And it led to finding 26 more bones belonging to a female between the ages of 14 and 20 years old. Just only six days after that first bone was found, DNA results concluded that the remains belonged to Molly Bish. They had found her body. About two months later, on August 2nd, 2003, Molly's remains were laid to rest on her 20th birthday. It was great and all that they had found Molly's body, of course, but the frustrating part was that the remains from the body didn't have any other DNA on them. No Unidentified DNA, no DNA from anybody or anything else. There were essentially 
undisturbed, if you will. And that was a little bit of a of a blow. But they did, however, have a profile created for who they felt the offender was. They believe him to have been around the ages of 18 to 50, Caucasian, and a fisherman or a hunter, and perhaps a history of violence, especially towards women. During this time, the Bish family also hired a private detective. Um, He's actually a family friend and was involved in local law enforcement in a neighboring town. So they've got this guy on his side to kind of help them continue on through the years of figuring out where this, you can't call it a cold case, but where this case with like no clues, but that Molly was taken, stripped of her bathing suit and left here in Palmer, right? So there's not a lot of clues, but they've got this guy to help them through the rest of their years while they try and bring justice to Molly. In October 2008, the boyfriend, Stephen Lucas, died in a fatal car accident, never knowing what happened to his girlfriend on that day eight years earlier. 2008 also brought another interesting twist to the story. A new suspect came to light. Rodney Stanger was arrested for the murder of his girlfriend in Florida. So we're thinking, why does somebody in Florida have something to do with this case? And why did that make its rounds back to Massachusetts? Well, there was a likeness in the composite from Maggie in Molly's case to this guy, Rodney. And the DA received a phone call that linked Rodney directly to Molly Bish. So somebody in Florida calls the DA office in Massachusetts and says, yo, I think we have your guy. The tip stated that before her murder, Rodney's girlfriend had made some incriminating statements to them about Rodney and the Molly Bish case. So essentially, Rodney's girlfriend, right, who had been a who had been murdered by Rodney was talking to somebody and saying that Rodney had something to do with or knew something about Molly Bish's case. We don't know much, but that's what we're assuming she would have said. So we might still be wondering how the heck would he have had anything to do with her murder and been in Warren, the small town in Massachusetts, when he lived in Florida, right? Well, he had lived in Warren for 20 years. He was a fisherman and hunter, so that fit the profile. Things aren't He'd looking only, good for him. <laughs> things were already, and there's more. Oh, gosh. And there's more. He had only moved to Florida a year after Molly disappeared. So he was in Warren mm-hmm. at the time of her disappearance, at least living there physically. We don't know. He also had a violent past towards women. Hello, he murdered his girlfriend and his ex-partners. Also had some not great things to say about him. I believe he had two ex-wives that spoke to this violent nature. His brother, Randy, who had also lived in the area at the time, used to have a white car. So presumably, Rodney could have borrowed it. Or, hey, 
did Randy look like Rodney? Could right. they have had something to do with this, right? It makes me wonder if he looked like the picture the mom had drawn up. Or, you know what I mean? The profilers drew up. Correct. He did look like the composite that Maggie helped create for Molly's case. He looked like the drawing. Okay. It gets more intense. Are you ready? Yeah. I'm here for it. He used to live down the road from Holly Peranian. Okay. What the actual uh, I mean, F. On paper, this guy sounds like the guy. I know. They questioned him, of course, and he denied having anything to do with the case. He did plead guilty to the murder of his girlfriend, which he was arrested and on trial for but still denied anything to do with Molly's case and presumably Holly's as well. With that sort of ending with his denial at this point, Molly's case is still open. Her parents have started the Molly Bish Foundation. It's a foundation that's dedicated to safety, awareness, and prevention. When Molly went missing, interestingly enough, they didn't have the right kind of photo that the police really needed, which involves a very clear head-on shot of a face and shoulder, right? So it's kind of like a shoulders-up shot, real clear, so you can see all facial... Like a passport photo. Yeah, you want to see all of the facial features, right? So they didn't have that. So to them, something they were passionate about through this foundation was distribution of ID booklets for kids and getting those pictures taken for those ID booklets. I know a lot of us that grew up in the 90s, you would go to like a state fair mm -hmm. or things like that, and they would have these booths up, right, where you can go get fingerprinted. Totally remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. We all did that. And then you got this little folded piece of paper and your parents kept it in a filing cabinet. And I remember my parents definitely telling me why I was getting one for safety, etc. So it was really important to Molly's parents as well. And that's something their foundation was really uh, huge on and really spearheads. Her parents and possibly the foundation were also really instrumental in getting the Amber Alert enacted in Massachusetts. It did not exist in Massachusetts when Molly went missing. And we've heard that a lot before, too. Too often. <laughs> in different cases. Way too often. Luckily, that's not a thing today because it's nationwide now. But when Molly went missing, it was three years away from being nationwide. So in that time... Molly's parents got it to Massachusetts, and then now, of course, all the states have adopted it. Yeah, I don't know if there was a nationwide push for Amber Alert in general, or if it's just that in one way or another, all states have now adopted it on their own accord. On the anniversary of Molly's disappearance, they drive to the pond every single year. It must mean something to them. It must bring Maggie back to her last ride with her daughter. It's just something that they do every single year, and they have for 20 years now. On this year, it was the 20th anniversary. So to mark the anniversary, on the evening of June 27th, 2020, a vigil was held in Molly's memory and to commemorate 
that 20 horrific years have passed since her disappearance and presumably her death. The community did something really sweet to also commemorate this without attending the vigil because not everyone was attending this vigil. It was a bit smallish. There was an article in their local newspaper that asked the community to light the family's way to the vigil, to light up this year's drive. That meant put a candle in the window, Mm -hmm. stand outside with the candle, leave your porch lights on, do something to let this family know that you are with them in solidarity on their way to this smaller vigil at the pond. Anyone with any information on the abduction or murder of Molly Bish can call the Massachusetts State Police tip line at 508-453-7575. That's it for this story. Holly and Molly's cases are both unsolved with lots of different types of hot leads and That's where we unfortunately have to leave it this week. Until then, you know where to find us at the Murder Diaries Pod on Instagram, at the Murder Diaries Pod at gmail.com. Don't be a stranger. And you know what I'm going to say. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It definitely helps us continue to bring the Murder Diaries to you every week and we appreciate every single star you give us and every kind word you write in your review we do see them and we thank you so much for all the kind ones that have been left so far and until then better safe than dead bye is your daily grind getting you down a thermospas hot tub may be the solution just a few minutes under those powerful soothing jets and all your stress seems to melt away like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.